Well, good morning. Um, hey, I'm impressed. It's a different looking sanctuary than when I was here just a few weeks ago. And I kept imagining, how are they going to have sort of modern chairs in this uh, lovely old synagogue? But uh, whoever was the uh, fashion consultant for this thing, or interior decorator, whatever, did a fabulous job, I think. So I'm, I'm just uh, very, very pleased and glad to be back. And uh, thank you for letting me be part of this transition um, season in the life of the church as, as you look ahead to uh, the Smiths coming to, uh, to join with you. Um, I got to know Larry and Harriet back when my son Steve was uh, a student at Westminster Seminary uh, quite a number of years ago and uh, have followed their, see them periodically and followed their development with interest. So I was so pleased to know that he was both being considered and then called to be your pastor here, and I know you have a lot, lot to look forward to. But uh, you've been working through the book of Acts. can't think of anything better in terms of anticipation of the new pastor coming. And uh, we've come now to chapter 8 of Acts, um, and I'm going to read the, the assignment for me. And I again, I, I love having a, a passage assigned rather than sort of, well, Steve, preach on whatever you, whatever you want. I don't want to pull the old sermon out. I want to kind of be stretched myself a little bit. And indeed, that was the case as I read this uh, wonderful passage. So uh, either look up on the, uh, uh, the screen or open your own Bibles. The book of Acts, chapter 8. Yeah, I see Tim there turning on his Bible. That's what you have to say these days uh, for a lot of you. Uh, it's on your pad or your phone, but... Nevertheless, uh, we're going to read, I'll read through the full passage, but then uh, keep watching because we're going to work our way back through this story as we talk about it. So Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Follow, please, as I read God's holy word. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. What an interesting story. And, uh, What I suspect for most of you, as you read through this, what kind of grabbed you was this story of Simon, this magician. And I want to talk about him. But there's a bigger story that takes place, as described in this passage. And so often, I'm afraid, we get drawn to the, to the, small, the personal stories, I guess you say, and miss the big picture. So uh, I've got notes, actually, you've probably seen them on the back of the, of the bulletin, but I've, I'm calling this uh, message this morning, The Big Story and Your Story. Because I don't want to ignore your story, but so often we're focused in, I think, on our own set of problems, our aches and our pains, our own struggles, our own issues, our doubts, and appropriately so. But folks, there's something bigger that's going on. And it's the bigger story here that really impacts New Life Philadelphia, I think, more even than this story of Simon. So, uh, so let's look at that first. And then uh, I definitely will come back to this story of Simon, this uh, strange story of uh, Simon the magician. I don't want to ignore that. But here we are. Uh, if you've been part of this study, uh, you know that you've spent the last few weeks uh, talking about Stephen. Uh, that's my 
name. Uh, so far, I haven't suffered the fate that Stephen in the Bible suffered, but he was, uh, in fact, stoned, as you know. So when it starts off, and let's go back and look at the text again, if you guys would flash the first several verses up there for me, so we can, not yet, 1-8, there we go, good, thank you. And Saul approved of his execution. So the his, of course, is then Stephen, who was earlier elected, along with Philip that we're talking about today, as one of those who would help the apostles. And uh, we think of them typically as the first deacons, and I think that's probably a good way to, to think about them. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And there were scattered throughout, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. So the, the second half of the book of Acts uh, is about this man, Saul, whose name is changed to Paul, the great apostle. But at this stage, he's a persecutor of the church. And uh, no doubt has been the instigator, both of the uh, stoning of Stephen, but now of this uh, severe persecution. But it's the language is very important. I want you to notice back in verse 1 that they were scattered where? Notice, in Judea and Samaria. Now, that really takes us back to chapter 1, verse 8. And I've, I've, we're going to put that up there because I want you to pay attention because this really is the key, the key verse for this chapter as well as the whole book. But you will receive power. Now, this is Jesus speaking. This is the risen Christ spending those 40 days with the apostles before he ascends to heaven, saying to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, the Holy Spirit has been present all along. Jesus, you read it there in Acts, he, he speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, uh, but, but here's the text, though. But wait. Over and over, Jesus says, I'm going to send you out into the world, but not yet. Right? I want you to wait. Because the Holy Spirit has to come on you, and then you will be my witnesses. Where? Notice. Jerusalem. What? Judea and Samaria. They're put together, just like they are in this passage. That's why I say this is important. And to the ends of the earth. Now, I preached on this verse many times over the years, and I used to talk about sort of the fourfold steps as the gospel goes out. Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. That's really not what the text says. Jerusalem is where it all started. Then step out to Judea and Samaria. I'm just saying that's important because this text in chapter 8 is following exactly that pattern. So the next step for the power of the Holy Spirit moving out from Jerusalem is going to be a Judea and Samaria. And they, that's exactly where we are. 
when we come to this to this passage. And then, keep that in mind, to the ends of the earth, which that's all the other places of the world, and particularly it's the Gentile world. And uh, that comes up too, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. So Philip, one of these chosen along with Stephen, goes and proclaims the gospel as they go. I'm jumping down. I'm back in, in, chap, in chapter 8 now and looking at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, Christ the Messiah. Now, many of you know this, but I need to point out that the Samaritans were those people we don't like, those other folks, the different ones. You know, if you go to Judea, you're going to other Jews. But the Samaritans were kind of a half-breed. They had Jewish roots, but they also had pagan roots. They were despised by the Jews. They would travel all the way around if they're going to Jerusalem to avoid Samaria. Those are the people you really don't want to talk to. They're not worthy. They're not, they're not good enough. And, and folks, this is a hint to what a radical change is coming because of Jesus and his kingdom. Because who did Jesus actually identify with and target? Remember, he, he chose to go through Samaria. He chose to go for those folks that nobody else would talk to. He chose to talk to a woman of Samaria, no less. Why? Two strikes against her. A woman and a Samaritan. And when he wanted to talk about what it is to show mercy for someone who's broken and beaten, who did he pick? He could have, he could have, he's, it's a story he told. He could have, he could have chosen anybody, but who was the good what? Good Samaritan. Don't miss that. Because Jesus didn't just sort of let things happen. He was determined to see this world changed because that's why he came. And so Philip goes and preaches in Samaria, and people start believing. Whoa. What's going on? We're un they paid attention to him. I'm reading the passage. Crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. These are called signs and wonders. This is the spectacular demonstrations of the power of God that accompanied the preaching of the gospel in those days. And there are some who would say, by the way, that that's, that's finished. That doesn't happen anymore. There is no such thing as signs and wonders. That was just part of the apostolic age, as some say. Well, I don't find any Bible, anything in the Bible that says that. And it's my own observation, not that it's worth too much, but I've been around for a little while, 
But the, the stories of the power of God in demonstrable ways seems to be when God is breaking into a new place and a new culture and a new community. And the power of God comes in a way that people say, whoa! And they perk up and they pay attention. What's going on here? What's going on here is the preaching of Jesus. But they weren't bothering with those guys doing this preaching until something like a healing or a, or a deliverance or some other demonstration takes place. God doesn't have to do that. I don't know that he does it every time. But at the same time to say, oh, no, God can't do that. Come on. Why can't he? Why can't he if he pleases? And it's been my observation that that the, uh, as I say, the healings that I really think are are credible happen not so much to, unbeliever, to believers, but to, to unbelievers, to new believers. It, it gets their attention. I, I was thinking of, of uh, you hear these stories of Muslims coming to faith because of a vision of Jesus. It's all, oh, no, 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 can't happen, can't happen. Why not? But I remember, uh, actually, uh, John Steinruck and I are part of the session of the Rock of Israel, which is a church that you helped to sponsor through the Presbytery. It's right here in, in uh, northeast Philly. Uh, it's, it's Fred Klett reaching supposedly Jews, but he's always had with him Russians to come and help him in the ministry. And so what that's attracted is Russian-speaking people. They thought Russian-speaking Jews, but other Russian-speaking people. And I remember interviewing one woman who was joining the church, a Muslim coming from a Muslim background, but she'd come, she, one of these that had come to faith through a vision of Jesus. I've seen that a number of times. But I was curious. She was very articulate. I, I said to her, I said, tell me more about what you saw. She said, well, you know what? This is now a few years since this has happened. So I'm not sure I can tell you exactly what happened. All I know is it caused me to become a believer. I know that God for attention. And so I said, have you continued to have these revelations, these visions? And she said, no, no. Once once was enough. <laughs> because it, it seems as though when God does these dramatic moments, it causes people to hear the gospel. That is to now listen to Jesus. And that's where God wants to take them. And so, folks, we can't concentrate on sort of the spectacular and the, of these great demonstrations, but say thank the Lord for what he's doing. But the end result is people believing the gospel and following Christ. And so, in fact, the Lord, I think, takes some of those experiences away from people so they begin to depend on what he teaches in the word instead of on their on their feelings. Uh, I'm thinking also of, of a person I was talking to some years ago, it was my privilege when I was in Washington area to be part of the prison fellowship ministry of Charles Colson. And uh, periodically, several people from different prisons around the country would be brought to Washington for teaching, and then also to introduce themselves to senators and congressmen and people who were running the prisons and so forth. Chuck Colson wanted people to be exposed to those who were running the prisons. But it was my privilege to be kind of that teacher over a week, a 
fairly intense week of teaching. And, and I remember on different occasions, but I had, would have conversations, because we talk in depth about their coming to faith and what that looked like. And, uh, and again and again, you would, you would meet people who had had these dramatic experiences of the power of God opening their eyes and blowing them away. And, and, you, and you talked a little bit more to them and come to find out they had people been people who were deeply affected by the occult. Or they had been profoundly captive to one addiction or another. And it seems as though the Lord, when he works in people's lives, chooses to come at them in a level that says, Whoa! I thought I knew what the power was, but I've just met a greater power. So some of you, like, I guess I'm that way, sort of meek and mild and ordinary. And you say, well, I've never experienced that. You probably didn't need to. The Lord came to you in a way that spoke into your heart and into your life. So don't measure your experience by someone else's experience. They're all different, but the end result is the same. We come to believe in Jesus. Now, I think this is basically what happened to Simon, by the way. I'm not way off track. Simon was called the magician. Now, I want to talk more about him in a minute, but, but just to kind of insert this here. But I think Simon recognized that whatever power he was messing with, it was nothing compared to the power of Jesus Christ preached in the gospel and manifest through the preaching and ministry of Philip. And so Simon was blown away and said, Whoa, I thought I knew what power was, but I didn't. And he himself believed and was baptized. Well, let's, let's wait a minute and finish telling the big story, and then we'll go back, get back to this guy, Simon. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, Samaria, sitting in Jerusalem, which is where it all began, the Lord had said you're going to be scattered, but they wouldn't do it, so he pushed them out anyway. That's happened over and over and over, hasn't it, in the history of the Lord's church. People don't want to move out, and he moves them out. But Samaria, of all places, had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John, two apostles. John, you may remember from the Gospels, at one point was uh, wanted Jesus to call fire down on the Samaritans. So here was a guy with full of prejudice, bias against the Samaritans. They picked John to go. They also picked Peter. Remember Jesus said to Peter at one point, your name is Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And in a very literal sense, who was preaching on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the Jews? It was Peter. Who's now going to be there when the Spirit falls upon the Samaritans? It's going to be Peter. Chapter 10 that you'll get to in a few weeks, when the Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, who was the guy who was there for that to happen? Peter. So in a very literal sense, Peter unlocked the kingdom for these, the Jew first, Samaria, I mean, uh, Judea and Samaria, and 
the ends of the earth. But Peter and John are sent to check out what's going on, but when they came down, and I'm sure there's more to the story than this, but it simply says, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit's already come. What's this all about? Let me back up again to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The Spirit is already there in the church, but there's a unique way in which the Spirit was sent by Jesus to empower the church for witness. Pentecost, you see, was the Feast of the Harvest. When you take the Jewish calendar, the first important day was Passover. Well, what happened on Passover? Jesus was crucified. That was, was that an accident? Oh, what a coincidence. Jesus was crucified on Passover. No, it's exactly what God planned and intended. But what about Pentecost? Do you think that was an accident, just coincidence, that all these Jews from all over the world were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate a feast that marked the beginning of the harvest? And when did God choose to send the Spirit upon the church? On Pentecost. Folks, we need to, you know, we celebrate Christmas and Easter. Why don't we celebrate Pentecost? Maybe you do. We should. It's a huge event. It marks the beginning of the harvest that God is going to bring in. By the way, the third great feast, Passover, Pentecost, the third feast in the Jewish calendar was called Tabernacles. And to celebrate Tabernacles, which was the end of the harvest, you blew the trumpets. Think about how much the trumpet blast is associated with the return of Christ. There will come a day when the harvest is over, when God has done what he's going to do. But we're not there yet. And this is why this particular lesson, this big story, is so important for, for you and I today. Because the Spirit of God came in power upon the church in Jerusalem, and thousands believed they were gathering them in, but they were all Jewish. And, and the church kind of settled in, got comfortable. And so the Lord said, no, no, you got a job to do. He scattered them, and they went to, as we've seen, Judea and Samaria. Excuse me, yeah, to Judea and Samaria. That was stage two. And what happens? The Spirit comes upon them. And whatever was going on, Simon was able to see what the Spirit did. Now, you can't see the Holy Spirit, so there must have been something visible. It's, even though they're not described here, I, I suspect it was just speaking in tongues again, just like happened on the day of Pentecost. I say that because of stage three, which is going to come up in a few weeks, with Cornelius. Now, again, you're going to read the story of Cornelius, and you say, what a great story, what a great conversion of this 
noble man who comes, who knows there's something missing in his life, and he comes to faith. Well, I don't want to preach somebody else's sermon. But don't get so caught up in, in the story of Cornelius that you miss the big story again. The big story is Peter comes. He realizes, even though God, and God had to convince him to do this, I mean, this was a big one, the Gentiles. No, 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 not the Gentiles. Samaritans, all right, maybe we'll live with it. But you're not going to pour the Spirit out upon the Gentiles. Oh, yes, he is. And yes, he did. And the Spirit came in power upon, the, upon this Gentile people. And they spoke in tongues as at Pentecost. And I'm not saying tongues is necessarily to be always spoken, but that was associated with this falling of the Spirit to empower the church. It's really what's, what, is called, what is called the baptism with the Spirit. Jesus baptized his church with the Holy Spirit. First in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's the Gentiles. Because, folks, I want to tell you that harvest is going on to this day as we speak. When I was up at New Life Northeast and kind of going through these themes again, I, I came up with an image. See if some of the folks were with me at that point, because it seemed to be memorable. At least I remember it. But what I picture, and this is not a perfect picture, but think about this. What I pictured was up in heaven, wherever that is, is this massive pot of honey. It's just sitting there. Honey brings sweetness. And we live in a sour world. And don't we need some sweetness? Don't we need some light and some help? Just anywhere you look, whether it's our own city or, or what's happening in our country or around the world, we're in trouble. And we need some kind of a sweetness. So... So Jesus says to his disciples, don't start until I get to heaven so I can do what? Pour out the Spirit upon you. And that's exactly what happened. He went to the cross. He canceled our sin because of his death. He ascended to heaven. And then just a few days later, he gets hold of that big pot and tips it over. And out pours the honey splat right on Jerusalem and something spectacular happens and they begin to preach the gospel in a way that people come by the thousands to believe but it, it didn't stop there Jesus continues to tip that pot over and what happens that pool of honey it's going to be sticky and move slowly but it starts to what spread out Just picture the, the gospel honey Spreading, bringing sweetness and light to more and more people, and so it goes out to the to Judea and Samaria, right? And the Samaritans believe these these other folks come to faith, but it doesn't stop there, and it keeps spreading. It goes to the Gentiles, it goes to Cornelius, and then it spreads to to Greece and to Rome and so forth through Paul. And folks, it's been two thousand years, and I want to tell you that pool of gospel honey continues to move out. Now, the farther it moves out, if you think about it, the slower it's going to look. 
but it's covering more and more and more and more ground. And I want to tell you, the day in which we live, I mean right now, I don't want to talk about history and what happened and some of these, but right now we are living in the greatest day of a gospel expansion in all of history. Seriously. Just think of the stories that are going on that you, that you hear about. China, for example. Nothing like China has ever happened. Interestingly enough, the missionaries were booted out. Now, they did what they had to do. They, they sort of sowed the seeds of the gospel. But that was 1948. Communists took over. Missionaries, out of here! And people said, oh, no. You know, the church is finished. No, no. The church was just getting started. And there is no way to count how many Christians, how many people have become believers in China. As we speak, New Life Glenside, we've had the privilege of having a number of Chinese pastors, sort of a cluster of people, um, excited about the church in China. They, well, I won't get into that. But you could go on and on. India. But not, that, not so many years ago, they said, missionaries, out of here. We don't want any missionaries in India anymore. Oh, no, the church is finished. We're in trouble. Now, people find their way to get into India as well as China. But the fact of the matter is, the gospel is spreading in India, in reports I have, beyond anything that's ever happened. Not only going wider, but deeper. The church is building itself up with Indian leaders. Or the story of Korea. You understand that when Korea was first evangelized, the missionaries went to North Korea, if you knew that. And when the terrible, terrible, and it was awful, when the, when the, you know, the Japanese took over all of Korea, and then, of course, the communists came and took over North Korea and compelled, scattered the believers to the south, and the real evangelization of South Korea began because of the Korean War and the communist takeover of Korea. And now the Korean church is one of the strongest churches in all the world, and they are praying. I don't, boy, getting Koreans praying is really pretty scary. I mean, the prayer meetings they have are unbelievable, but don't you believe that they are praying earnestly for the fall of North Korea or for some kind of change and for the gospel and for the, the believers that are still there? Well, anyway, we could multiply these stories over and over and over. But I just, wanted, I just want you to see the gospel is spreading. The honey of the gospel is still at work. And there are problems, there are difficulties. It's been a struggle. You can point to all the issues and, diff- and, and failures and mess-ups. But the fact is, I mean, even I've been a believer for, I guess, 50, 50 years now. And, I mean, they used to talk. I first was encountering missions about all the people who'd never heard the gospel before. You don't hear that much anymore. Now there are umpteen, untold millions who need to hear the gospel of Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, as we speak, there is hardly a place in the world that you won't find some presence of Christian people bearing witness to Christ. Missionaries used to take a whole lifetime to translate Bible into a, into a language. 
amazing work of Christian, of uh, Wycliffe translators. Now with the computer technology and all the stuff we do, it, you know, it's really a matter of a few years. And they're multiplying, going faster and faster. On and on it goes. But that doesn't mean that the places where there's been gospel honey don't have to kind of fill in the blanks, come back and fill in. And we know the gospel's been here in Philadelphia for a long time. Does that mean there isn't a job to be done right here in, in this part of Philly? Not for a moment. But I want you to see, folks, God is at work. God is at work. And there was a wonderful job done by John and uh, Shelley. Julene, a number of you were part of the church in its earliest days. And they sowed the seeds, and they planted the church. Now, kind of as I've watched with you what's going on, I really believe you're ready for a new chapter. Glad to hear the amens. And I want you to just believe that the Spirit of God is at work. And the harvest is still going on. And uh, I believe the, the, greatest, the greatest days for New Life Philly are yet ahead of you. Believe that. I mean, you have new chairs. What else can you want? <laughs> I was. I always think the prayer is not, "Lord, get your will, get your work done." He's going to get it done. It's being done. God is right on schedule. The kingdom will come in its own time. The challenge is not, "Will God get His work done?" The challenge is, "Lord, please choose to work through us." not around us. Because you and I know that there have been times when God has had to bypass his church to accomplish the work of the kingdom. And we ought to cry and beg God, Lord, let us be a channel of your blessing, not a hindrance to your blessing. Well, let me take a few minutes and, and look at the story of, of Simon. Because it's very interesting that here's, in, in the midst of this bigger story, this personal story of this magician who is so struck by the power that he witnesses that he himself is baptized. We're back to verse 12, well, 8 verses 9 through 12. Um, he presented himself as this great, as this great man. Uh, they all paid attention to him, verse 11, because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, continued with Philip. Well, so far so good. But what happens? If you remember what we read. The apostles came, laid their hands, and the Spirit fell upon the Samaritans in a way that he had not before. Philip, excuse me, Simon watching this, when verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what's going on here? Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain 
the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the interest intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the ball of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So what do we say about Simon? He believed and was baptized. And then he turns around and tries to buy power to give the Holy Spirit to people. In fact, to this day, the word simony is used for people who try to buy church office. And Peter rightly so, was furious with him. said, let your silver perish. Repent of this wickedness. And Simon prays, or he says, Peter, pray for me that, that this awful calamity won't happen to me. Now, one of the, when you read about this chapter in Scripture, one of the things that the different people argue about is was Simon a real believer or not? It's important to ask this because we're not just talking about Simon, are we? Now it becomes personal. Someone would say, look at the language of Peter when he says, you have no part of us. And then people would claim Peter said, repent. But what Simon did was say, pray to the Lord that I won't be crushed. I don't want to suffer the effects of this. And that's really not repentance, some people will say. And with good reason. There's a tradition, actually, that Simon turned against the gospel and became an enemy of the church in the earliest days. Now, that, that's not scripture. We don't know that. On the other hand... I mean, this guy's a new believer. And what has he been doing all his life? He's been kind of doing magic. And uh, now he'd like to do magic for Jesus. Uh, and how do you get there? Well, you pay for it. That's the way things work, don't, isn't it? And so he meant well, but he was totally wrong. But it wasn't, it wasn't uh, kind of malicious in his desire. So what do you think? about Simon. Should we vote? Don't you love it? They take these polls about what do the American people think about something that is a fact or it isn't a fact. But what's important is what's the polls say. Well, ultimately, God knows what was in Simon's heart. I tell you, if it was me, to be honest, I'd vote yes. I'd say yes. He was a believer. But I don't I don't know that for sure. But folks, do any of us start off the Christian life knowing everything? Doing everything right? What's that? <laughs> so 
I suspect Simon was just kind of following his human instincts that were wrong. But again, we don't know. But really the question comes, where's your heart? You've been converted. Are you a believer in Jesus? Very clearly, the pattern was you believe and you're baptized. That means you become part, you associate yourself with God's people. You don't just say, well, I know what's in my heart, that's all important. No, you say, I want to identify with these people called Christians. I'll step up publicly confess him, which is what baptism is all about. Again, God knows your heart, but I just want to challenge you this morning. Folks, we have a a great mission here at New Life Philly. I'm I'm excited for you. I'm excited to kind of be a part of it in the sense of a cheerleader, a spectator, here to help any way I can. But it really does also come down to you personally. You've been converted to Jesus. It's a, it is a matter of believing. It sounds simple. I've heard it said it's easy. It's not easy. It's not easy, but it is simple. It's like getting married. You know, all you have to do to get married is say, you want to get married? I do. Done. But what it takes to get you to be married is a whole different story. So in the end, it's simple. You say, I believe in Jesus. I want to stand up and let it be known that I'm part of his people. I pray that for every one of you, that you can say, yes, I've I've been converted to Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I want to be part of what he's doing in the world.